Well, good morning. Oh, someone left me a gift. He's trying to fatten me up before I leave. Uh, we're going to be in the end of Matthew. We're going to wrap up Matthew today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 and 28. And uh, as I was trying to figure out how to wrap up this series or, or what direction to go, um, I, I had a choice to make this week. Uh, next week, I want to spend my last week in the pulpit here uh, actually looking back at the very first sermon that I ever preached here. I, I pulled it out the other day, and as I was looking through it, I want to point out next week just some things that I believed to be true then, uh, the very first time that I preached that message, um, that I still believe to be true today, and the way that you can see God's hand in all of this. So that's how I want to spend next Sunday. And so I had the choice this week uh, between two fairly crucial elements of the Christian faith. Uh, we have worked our way up now through the book of Matthew. We've seen uh, Christ's birth. We've seen, uh, we started out with a way back uh, months ago. We started out with, uh, with his lineage and just looked at the way that God had prepared the world for that time. We've looked at the way that he exercised his authority. We looked at the way that he exercised authority over the body by the people that he healed, the way he exercised authority over nature. Uh, calming the storm and things like that, the way that he exercised his authority by what he taught and the way that he taught uh, in such a manner that the people had never seen. He taught with an authority that the people had not seen and not experienced. And then we've spent the last few weeks in the last week, known as Passion Week, before the crucifixion of Jesus. And we've looked at some of the core truths that he taught. Love God, love people. Boiling down uh, the gospel, boiling down scripture to its base, to the roots. Uh, we've looked at some of the encounters that he had, some of the parables that he told during that time. And we've gotten right up to two huge events. The crucifixion and the resurrection. And as a pastor, you, you start looking at that going, okay, I, I don't have time to cover both. I mean, and do it any kind of justice. So where do you go? And then I started thinking, you know what? One without the other. If you don't have the empty tomb, if you don't have the resurrection, then all you're left with is just another death. It's just another good person that died a horrible death. It's the resurrection that validates the cross. It's the resurrection that gives us hope. Is the crucifixion important? Absolutely. Uh, do we need to believe that Jesus Christ died and suffered on that cross? Absolutely. But the resurrection is what gives us hope. The resurrection is what provides for us the salvation that we enjoy through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're skipping over, and I'm going to trust you, because your homework is to go back and read uh, 24, 25, 26, the beginning of 27, because uh, we're going to pick up kind of in the middle of, of chapter 27 and go on to uh, the end of, of chapter 28. And where we are now is Jesus has been crucified and he's been buried. And it's the darkest day in history, literally and figuratively. Literally, Scripture tells us the earth went dark. It tells us that the sun stopped shining. We're told that the earth, that creation, was mourning the death of its creator. But then figuratively as well, you have these disciples, not just the, the 12 men that followed Jesus, but also the others that had been with him. The women, the other ones that were a part of kind of that inner circle that Jesus had. You had them 
facing their darkest days because everything that they had invested in, everything that they'd given the last three years of their life for, all of the big hopes and the big dreams that they had were gone. They thought it was over. Back when I was at Nyack, back in uh, 95 or 96, somewhere way back then, I remember gathering in the dorm, uh, the common area. I know today, I think almost every college you go to, they have cable in their rooms, and they have, we didn't, we had one boxy TV that we would all gather around, and we were watching the NCAA tournament, and Syracuse was playing, and I don't remember what round it was, I don't remember really any of the details, but when you grow up a Cleveland fan, and you're used to every team that you cheer for losing a lot. When we moved to Syracuse, Syracuse basketball was a team that actually won games. And so I latched on to Syracuse basketball pretty quickly. And I became a huge Syracuse fan. I remember watching this game. And they played pretty well. They were playing Georgia. The game was going well. And then it seemed to just all fall apart. And all of a sudden, there's about 50-some seconds left. And they're down eight. And this is something my brother always gets on me about this, and Ethan gets on me about this too. When I'm watching a game, I get to the point where I just can't take anymore. All right, I went to bed in Game 7 of the World Series with the Indians and the Cubs. When the Indians were down three, I went to bed. I was done. I didn't want to watch it. I'd seen that movie. I knew how it ended. It still ended that way. But my wife actually watched. My wife, who does not watch sports, comes running into the bedroom. I think someone hit a home run. I think they're tied. So I had to get up, and then I had my heart broken all over again, but that's another story. So I was done. I went up to my room, and basically to pout. I was upset. Season was over. I had high hopes for that team. And I missed one of the greatest endings to a college basketball game ever. They hit two threes. They hit a fadeaway jumper that I saw in highlights later to tie it. And then in overtime, they're down one with the clock winding down, and the only guy they can get the ball to is... Their 6'10 center, who's the last guy you want dribbling the ball down the floor and the last guy you want shooting it unless he can dunk. He can't pass to anybody. And with two guys draped all over him, he throws up a prayer that drops cleanly through the net and they win the game. And I missed all of it because I was pouting. Because what I saw, what my brain was processing is that it was done. It was over. Everything that I was hoping for with that, it was done. And that's where the disciples are at right now. They basically have all scattered, they've all left, and they've all gone up to their rooms and they're pouting. Because what they've seen with their eyes, what they just witnessed, was the end. It was over. For them, it wasn't just that a season was over and there's always next year. For them, it was everything that they'd hoped for. Everything that they thought they had been promised. Everything that they were expecting was thrown out the window. And so here you have the disciples, each one again, having scattered. They've all at this point denied Jesus. You have that story of Peter, where Peter can't even stand in front of a servant girl, where she begins to say, well, hey, weren't you with him? And Peter denies Christ three times. Now, you have some that I think at least showed a little bit more faith. You have the women that at least stuck there, and the women that went and watched the burial and kind of stayed by his side, they were looking for that light at the end of the tunnel. But we know now death wasn't the end of the story. In death, the punishment for our sins had been paid, but it was in the resurrection that the victory was won. By conquering death, 
that sacrifice for our sins became eternal, became once for all. It was no longer necessary to continually sacrifice, to go through that, that system, that complicated system of atoning for your sins that the Jewish people had, been, had had to put up with. The debt was cleared. The resurrection completed that perfect sacrifice. And it also, it proved beyond a shadow of a doubt who this man was. It proved the power and the authority and the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Savior. And so I want to look at, I want to look at the resurrection today, and we're going to do a little bit of kind of apologetics training. All right? Because the reality is, you take away the resurrection, and none of the rest really matters. You take away the resurrection, you're left with just a story. But it's the resurrection that changed everything. Let's start by looking at the facts. These are the facts. There are a few things that as you engage people about your Christianity, as you engage people about this idea of of someone dying and being resurrected, being raised from the dead, obviously people are going to be a little bit skeptical about that. People just don't walk out of the grave all the time. But there are some things that are not disputed. There are some things that we have a historical record, not just from the Bible, but from other uh, works of history from that time that would have been accepted by everyone. It would have been accepted by the Romans back then. It would have been accepted by uh, the Jews, by the Pharisees. It doesn't matter. The first fact that we know is that Jesus died on that cross. We know that. That is, that is a fact. And there's a few things that back that up because one theory that I've heard people say, they call it the swoon theory. And we'll hit on this a little bit in just a moment. But that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just passed out. We know that Jesus died on that cross. And there's a few reasons. The first reason for that is that the Romans were experts on death. The Romans knew how to kill somebody. And so if we have the record saying that the Romans had put him to death, we can be assured that he had died. The Romans put hundreds of thousands of people to death by crucifixion. And so when that soldier came around to break Jesus' leg and saw that he was already dead, you can be sure that he knew what he was looking for. You can be sure that he knew what he was doing. The Romans were experts on death. The second reason that we know he died is that you have this account of of Pilate making sure. Again, for Pontius Pilate, for the Romans, it was essential that Jesus actually died. They had put him to death to keep the peace. And so they wanted as much as anyone for this man to be dead. Listen as I read verses 57 through 61 of chapter 27. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So in this account in Matthew, you see that Pilate gives permission for the body to be taken down. Now, for the Romans, a big part of their rule, a big part of how they controlled those that were subject to them was through terror and fear. 
And so when it came to crucifixion, the, the normal protocol was you left the body on the cross for a long time, for days. You wanted people to see it. You wanted people to be afraid. And so Joseph, wanting that body, wanting to bury him according to Jewish custom, needing to take him down before the Sabbath, Joseph had to go and he had to get special permission from Pilate. And then if you look at this account in Mark chapter 15, the same account, you read this. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave Joseph the body. And so Pilate verified it. Pilate made sure. He didn't just say, yeah, go ahead, take him down. He's all yours. Pilate had the centurion go, and he had the centurion make sure. And so again, we know that Jesus was dead. And then finally, in those verses we just read, he was handled. He was prepared for burial. That would have meant handling the body. That would have meant wrapping him, putting the spices on him, wrapping him with the grave clothes. If there was any life left in Jesus' body, they would have known. There's no possible way that they could have sealed that tomb, still thinking that he might have been alive. And so we know that. We know that Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's a fact. The second thing that we know, and again, that would have been accepted by everyone in that day and age, is that Christ was buried in that tomb. In that tomb, that place, the one that was sealed, we know Christ was buried in there. Verse 61 just said that the two Marys were there watching as he was buried, as the stone is rolled into place. The first verse of chapter 28 says, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So again, they knew exactly where he had gone. They knew exactly where he had been buried. There were witnesses. We have their testimony, but listen to this. Verses 62 to 66. The next day, the one after the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. That last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, the translation there, the guard, would not have been one person. This is not one guy standing in front of the tomb. This is a, not a legion, that's way too many, but this is a, a group of Roman guards. And so they know the tomb that Jesus is in. They go and they seal that tomb. They post a guard at that tomb, knowing that if the body comes up missing, it'll be worse than what they call the first deception, Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, Jesus claiming to be the Savior. They had taken care of that by putting him to death. But they knew that if somehow those disciples could get in, if somehow they could steal the body, if the tomb came up empty, Things would be worse than they'd been in the first place. And so they placed a Roman guard before the sealed tomb. And the third fact that we know, we know Jesus was dead. We know he was buried in that tomb. We also know that that tomb was empty. The guards saw it. The women saw it. The disciples saw it. That tomb that Jesus was placed in, where his body was laid, was occupied no more. Those are the facts. That's the groundwork for the resurrection. We know those three things. And since that day, 
men have been tasked with what they'll do with those facts, how to interpret those facts. But what you see happen next is what you still see happen today. When you don't want the truth of something to get out, you begin to look for ways to cover it up. When you don't want the truth to get out, you begin to lie. My older kids, when they were little, I mean, my younger kids never do this. They've never lied to us ever. But my older kids, it didn't matter if you caught them red-handed with something. You could catch them with an open marker in their hand and ask how the marker got on the wall, and they would tell you they had no idea. I remember driving. We were bringing the kids to stay with my mom for a little while. Driving in the car, hearing a page begin to rip from a book, looking in my mirror and seeing Catherine, sweet little, probably 20-month-old Catherine, tearing the page out of one of her books. There she sits. I've told you before, my kids all know this. Kate was our cutest kid by far. She had those big cartoon eyes, and she pretty much had me wrapped around her little finger from the moment she was born. I look in the back seat, and there's that beautiful, cute little face with her book in one hand and the page in the other. Catherine, did you take that? Did you tear that out of your book? No, Ethan. When you don't want the truth to get out, you have to present an alternate scenario. For Kate, it was simple. And honestly, it was consistent with Kate. Everything was Ethan. Ethan had done everything that Kate ever did was blamed on Ethan. But the Pharisees needed this truth covered up. With an empty tomb, this was devastating to the Pharisees. Because if that tomb is empty, there's only two possible explanations. There's either a human explanation or there's a divine explanation. God did what he said he would do. And so rather than let that get out, rather than let people think that Jesus had done what he said, he did. They came up with an alternative. And I'm convinced they, they believe this with all their heart, that this is what, was, what must have happened. So let's look at the human theories. There have been a lot of theories that have been presented by men to explain the empty tomb, to explain the resurrection. This is the single most important part of the good news. The single most important part of the story of Jesus Christ. Because if you can take away the empty tomb, if you can destroy the resurrection, if you can prove that that didn't happen, everything else in Christianity falls apart. Everything else becomes irrelevant. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Uh, he puts it as plain as you can. Without the resurrection, there is no hope. And so there's a couple theories that are easy to, again, easy to discount. You have that one that we talked about a little bit, the swoon theory where Jesus just simply passed out. You have the other, another theory that says that, sorry, I just completely lost my train of thought. You have the, another theory that says that the body was taken, the body was stolen. And there's a couple different theories as far as who might have taken the body. Uh, there's three prevalent theories. The first is that it was the disciples, and we're going to look at that one. But the other two are that the Jews or the Romans stole the body. Now, we'll deal with the Jews and we'll deal with the Romans. I'm sorry, yes, I missed the wrong tomb theory. 
The wrong tomb theory is simply ridiculous. All right? We're told in Scripture that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. There's no chance that Joseph forgot where his tomb was or what tomb it was. And again, we already looked at the fact that the women followed. The women watched them put the body in. They watched them roll the stone. They watched them seal the tomb. And so the wrong tomb theory holds absolutely no water. But the theory that you will get the most from people, people that try to deny the resurrection, is this theft theory. All right, again, if it was the Jews or if it was the Romans, as soon as the disciples began to preach that Jesus had resurrected from the dead, they would have produced the body. They, they would have never let it get out of hand. Because again, for them, if Jesus resurrected, that was the worst case scenario for the Pharisees because it meant that everything that they had set up, everything that they had constructed, the systems, the processes of religion that they had put in place would have been completely undermined and would have been completely destroyed. And so for the Romans or the Jews, if they had stolen the body, they would have simply produced the body and that would have been the end of this whole thing. And so the one that is most prevalent that people put out there is that the disciples came and the disciples took the body. They knew what Jesus had taught. They knew what Jesus had said. And so they decided that if they could steal the body, they could continue with the story that they had in the eyes of the Pharisees, in the eyes of the Romans, the story that they had made up. Listen as I read chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Now it's interesting. If you remember, it says the guards were Roman. Now, my guess is, if the Roman guards went to the Romans and said, we lost the body, they're probably going to be put to death at that point. And so you have an account in Scripture. They don't go to their superiors. They go to the chief priest trying to figure out what they're going to do in this situation. When the chief priest met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money, did as they were instructed, and the story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So, in order to cover the truth, they put forth the lie that the disciples had stolen the body. But let's look at a couple things. There, there's a couple simple holes in the story. And again, as a parent who's been lied to a million times by his own kids, you begin to look at stories with a certain uh, eye for details that don't quite make sense. Thankfully, all my kids are terrible liars, which is nice because they get caught easily. But in this case, the, they say the disciples stole the body while we were asleep. What's the problem with that? If you're asleep, you can't see who took the body. I mean, so right off the bat, you have an account that it's, it's the disciples. They took it. Well, how do you know? Well, I don't know. We were asleep. And so again, right off the bat, the story doesn't hold a lot of water. But then if you read through the Gospels, if you read about these disciples, there is nothing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John that gives you the sense that these men could pull off something like this. Over and over and over, you have these men messing up. You have these men making mistakes. You have these men kind of 
Scripture almost presents a, a bumbling around by especially Peter over and over again. And do you remember, these are the men that just a few days before that, at the first hint of trouble, scattered, ran, left, hid. So, so to think that these men all of a sudden would have worked up the courage to pull off a heist like this, it was guarded by, what do we say? Just any old soldiers? No, Roman soldiers. The highest trained, most skilled soldiers that the world to that point had ever known. So to think that these 12 or 11 at that point, ordinary men, could have planned this and put it together, they would have had to overwhelm and defeat this group of soldiers. Which, if that's what happened, the soldiers refuted that with their own testimony by going to the chief priest and saying, look, it's gone. We don't really know what happened to it. The other thing is, we're told that when they went to the tomb and they looked in the tomb, we're told that they saw the grave clothes folded neatly and sitting there. If the disciples had stolen the body and the Roman soldiers were standing outside the tomb, under any scenario, can you picture Peter folding the grave clothes back up and setting them down nicely? No, they're going to grab the body and whatever they need, and they're going to get out as quickly as they possibly can. The other thing is, apart from preparing the body for burial, for the Jews to touch a dead body was an extreme no-no as far as their ritual purity went. And so at that point, they would have wanted nothing to do with that body. And then as you read the account of the empty tomb, as you read the account of that Easter morning where Mary goes down and sees that the tomb is empty and we're told that she doesn't understand. She's wondering what happened. Peter saw the grave clothes. He went in and he's wondering what happened. If they had planned and orchestrated stealing the body, they would have known exactly what happened. There wouldn't have been that sense of wonder showing that they still didn't understand what it was that God had, or what Jesus had taught them and what Jesus was going to do. In fact, when the body goes missing, we're told Mary's standing crying outside the tomb. So distraught that as Jesus comes face to face with her, she doesn't even recognize him until he speaks. So the disciples, to say that the disciples stole the body simply doesn't work. It doesn't hold water. And so now there's the human angle, which couldn't have happened. Now you have the divine proof, the divine proof. And some of these, some of these crisscross a little bit. And some of the divine proof, I think, goes a long way towards disproving the theory that the disciples may have stolen the body. But the first thing that we see is that it's an event that was marked with an angel. I think it's kind of cool that it comes full circle here. You have the beginning where an angel comes and says, look, Jesus is born. Here he is. And then you see the return. Chapter 28, verse 2. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like, like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And so their account that they were sleeping 
Scripture verifies that part. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And so the first proof, God wanted there to be no mistake as to what had just happened. Just like he wanted there to be no mistake in that he had sent his son to earth. And so he proclaimed his birth. God again sends an angel to proclaim the resurrection. The second proof that we have are the eyewitnesses. And this is something that cannot be just thrown away. This is something that cannot be discounted. If I tell you that I saw something, you might believe me. You might. Now, if Aaron and my mom and Pete, if they tell you they saw the same thing, you know, you're probably going to stop. I mean, my mom, as far as I know, doesn't lie a lot. So you're probably going to start to believe. Now, if every single person in this room says, yeah, we saw that. Yeah, we were there. We saw it. Yeah, we saw it with our own eyes. You're going to believe. The more eyewitnesses to something, the more credible it is that that thing happened. And in Scripture, you have eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord, not just the disciples, not just one or two people. We're told that he appeared to the disciples, that he appeared to smaller groups of people, and then we're told that he appeared to huge groups of people at the same time. So there are multiple cases of eyewitnesses. And again, this is not just documented in Scripture. You have accounts in Jewish historians like Josephus who attest to the fact that there are many who saw the resurrected Christ. Listen again to Peter or to Paul, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 15. Documenting the eyewitness account. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And they appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So again, you have documented historical fact of eyewitness accounts to the resurrection of Jesus. And then the last proof that I want to look at, this is the one that to me has always been the most compelling. And this is the one that to me uh, completely refutes the idea that the disciples may have stolen the body. If you look at the disciples and the accounts of the disciples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you look at the account of the disciples in the book of Acts, it is hard to imagine that these are the same men. These are men that as they began to stand up and they began to proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, these are men that were beaten, these are men that were persecuted, these are men that were put in prison, and all but, I believe, with one exception, these are all men that met a violent end because of their message. The change from cowering and pouting and thinking everything's over to standing and proudly proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior without any thought for what the consequences of that may be. I believe with all my heart, could only happen because they'd seen the risen Lord. 
could only happen because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if the disciples had stolen the body, and I don't think this is just me, all right? I don't like pain, but the first time they flogged me, I'd go get the body, and I'd show it, and I'd be done. But these men were willing to endure suffering because they had seen with their own eyes. Listen, as we get into the book of Acts here, Acts chapter 4, calling disciples in, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Again, the man that ran from a servant girl is now standing before the the legal governing body of the people and saying, I don't really care what you tell me to do because of what I've seen. This is what I have to do. And then as you get into Acts 5, they're they're dragged before the Sanhedrin, again, the governing body, and this is what it says. They called the apostles in and they had them flogged. All right, this was... I mean, if you've seen the passion of the Christ and you've seen what flogging does and you've seen the, the physical results, all right, this is, not, this is not a slap on the wrist kind of thing. All right, this is not just a, hey, we're going to, even one time with a whip, but it wasn't one time. This is extreme physical pain and punishment. They called them in, they had them flogged, and they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Their lives now had meaning and purpose. And it's this change that we see in these men that that I believe is the most convincing proof of the resurrection of Jesus. People aren't willing to die for something that they are not convinced in their mind is true because they've seen it with their own eyes. Seeing Jesus again, seeing the resurrected Savior changed their lives. And because of that, through them, because of their willingness to count it joy, that they were suffering disgrace, their willingness to not be silent, their willingness to stand and proclaim that Jesus died for the sins of the world. Because of them, the world was changed as God used them. And as we close the book of Matthew, as Jesus has left the disciples, this was the final command that he gave to them. Matthew 28, 18, what we know is the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very ends of the age. They had failed Jesus once. They had experienced that agony of shattered dreams of of seeming hopelessness and then they'd seen the empty tomb and then they'd seen the risen christ 
They had watched him die, and now here he was again in their midst. And it was that truth, and it was that reality that drove them to carry that light and to carry that message, the message of a cross and an empty tomb, and to become light themselves, to point others to the Christ that they loved and they knew. The cross was the reason that Jesus came. But the hope comes through the empty tomb. The hope comes through the resurrection. It's through that that we find forgiveness. It's through that that we find the salvation of our souls. That's the greatest story ever told. And I hope that as you hear it, as you read about it, as you talk with others about it, I hope it's a story that never grows old for you. I hope it's a story that always fills you with awe and with wonder at the love of a God that would send his son to die on the cross for us. The stone's been rolled away. And just as the angel proclaimed then, it's true now. He is not here. And that last command that Jesus gives is the command to those disciples. And you see that it's the command that is the bedrock and the basis of the early church. But it's a command for us and it's a command for the church today as well. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Church is not just about coming on a Sunday morning and listening to the pastor for anywhere from 25 to 45 minutes and then going home. The church, the universal church, is called to make disciples. It's called to share the good news of the gospel. And you are surrounded by people here that still need to hear that gospel. You're surrounded by people here that maybe have taken that first step in their relationship with Jesus, but need to learn and need to grow and need to be disciples. And this needs to be a place where we are actively obeying that command of the resurrected Lord to go and make disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that the cross is not the end of your story. Lord, I thank you that the reality is that there is an empty tomb. Every other great man, every other great religious leader all of their tombs are occupied. It's only Jesus Christ. It's only the Son of God. It's only the Messiah, the Savior, who was able to stand up and walk out of the grave. And it's only through him and it's only through his name that we can experience salvation for our souls, that we can experience forgiveness and hope and freedom all of the things that are promised to us in Scripture. So, Lord, we thank you for the empty tomb. And, Lord, I pray that even as we go from this place, that that would be the message on our lips to this world that needs to hear, that, that our message would be there is a God that loves them. And there's a Savior that died for them. Lord, help us to do our part to fulfill this great commission to go and make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach them all that we see in Scripture, all that you've taught us, all that those have, that have invested in our lives have taught us. Help us to do the same. In Christ's name.
Let us 